Previously on Breakdown. And the president was as mad as I've ever seen him, and he was trying to control himself. And the president said, well, this is you know, killing me. Uh, you didn't have to say this. You must have said this because you hate Trump. You hate Trump. We interviewed, the FBI interviewed the individuals that are depicted in the, the videos. It purportedly were double, triple counting of the ballots and determined that nothing irregular happened in the counting and the allegations made by Mr. Giuliani uh, were false. You know, again, I think one of the things we need to realize is the president, the former president may very likely uh, try to raise a defense that the fraud existed, that he had the, the belief that there was fraud and he was acting on that belief. And there's various other defenses that he could also use for any of these crimes. But the law is clear that even if he thought he was doing the right thing, you cannot violate the laws to be able to achieve that objective. In episode five, we recap some significant work by the special purpose grand jury investigating former President Donald Trump and his allies. It is penetrating the former president's inner circle. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song, the celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Covering the justice system as a journalist has a large degree of predictability. Someone is indicted for a crime, a lawsuit is filed, the cases are docketed, and they wind their way toward a possible trial with several important checkpoints along the way. If you're vigilant enough to keep track of them, you stay up to speed. But believe me, there can be moments that seem to spring up out of nowhere and knock your socks off. And Tamar had one just a few days ago. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw the documents for the first time. It was July 5th. Seven so-called material witness certificates had popped up on the Fulton County Superior Court's website. Basically, subpoenas for people living outside the state. They referred to, quote, multi-state coordinated efforts to influence the results of the November 2020 election in Georgia and elsewhere. It was a national story, and I'm proud to say Tamar broke it. There were some big names in that slate of seven. Attorneys Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and Cleta Mitchell and South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, members of former President Donald Trump's inner sanctum. The subpoenas amounted to the legal version of a shot across the bow. The Fulton County criminal investigation into Georgia's 2020 elections has pierced the orbit of Donald Trump. Until that point, the special purpose grand jury tasked with examining the issue was largely focused on state and local witnesses. Those subpoenas were a wake-up call to the national press that something serious is going on in Atlanta vis-a-vis -vis Trump. That's attorney and former Obama ethics czar Norm Eisen. You remember him from episodes three and four. I've long believed that the cutting edge of um, accountability 
lies in Fulton County in the hands of uh, DA Fonnie Willis. And I think this latest round of subpoenas tells us that she's moving fast, she's moving with determination, and it kind of outlines to me the parameters of the alleged conspiracy that she's delving into with the special grand jury. Welcome back to Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution covering Georgia's most important cases. We're following the Trump grand jury in Fulton County. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter with the AJC. I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. We've had a busy couple of weeks here in Atlanta, fresh subpoenas, a flurry of witnesses coming in to testify, a courtroom scuffle over legislative immunity. I feel like we've learned more about Willis's investigation over the last month than we have in more than a year. We're seeing real details about her interests and hints on where she may be heading. We are in the middle of conducting an investigation. We want to talk to people that may be able to provide information to the grand jurors. And so we're just here doing the work and our due diligence. That's Willis, who recently sat down with us for an interview. We asked her if she plans to subpoena people who were inside the White House, specifically Trump and his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. I think it would be safe to say that if uh, people have information in particular about Georgia and interference in the Georgia elections, and they were in the White House, that will not bar us from wanting to talk to them. Sounds like we're heading that way, doesn't it? Based on the subpoenas we've been able to get our hands on, and remember, there are still many that aren't public, we're getting a decent sense of some of the things that prosecutors are interested in. You can put many witnesses into three large buckets. Folks who were on phone calls between Trump or his allies and Georgia officials, those who helped coordinate the slate of fake Republican electors, and the people involved in the State House hearings that featured testimony from Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Let's start with the phone calls. We dissected many of them in Episode 1. There's the phone call Trump placed to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on January 2, 2021. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. There's the call Trump had with Secretary of State Elections Investigator Francis Watson in December 2020. But if you go back two years... And if you can get to Fulton, you're going to find things that are going to be unbelievable, the, the dishonesty that, we're, that we've heard from them. Right. There's the conversation that Attorney General Chris Carr had with Trump. It was about the Texas lawsuit seeking to invalidate Georgia's election results. There are the calls Trump placed to Brian Kemp, too. He pressured the governor to call for a special session of the legislature. So far... Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, his general counsel Ryan Germany, Francis Watson, and Chris Carr have testified before the special purpose grand jury. Governor Kemp is slated to give a sworn statement later this month. It will be videotaped and delivered to the grand jury. And the grand jury wants to go even deeper than that. It subpoenaed Cleta Mitchell, the attorney who can be heard on the Trump call with Raffensperger, echoing the White House's unfounded claims of fraud. I will tell you, I've seen the tape. The full tape. We've watched it. And what we saw and what we've confirmed in the timing is that they made everybody leave. We have sworn affidavits saying that. And then they continue, Then they began to process ballots. And our estimate is that there were roughly 18,000 ballots. This wasn't the only time that Mitchell was involved with Georgia. 
In December 2020, she forwarded an email to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows that she had sent to a U.S. Senator from Indiana ahead of his scheduled TV appearance. It included 11 talking points about Georgia. Among them was the falsehood that thousands of votes had been illegally cast and that officials should order a new election. An 11-part plan to overturn the Georgia results, kind of a, a coup by law outlined in that email. That's Norm Eisen again. Earlier this month, the special purpose grand jury also subpoenaed another Trump ally, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. And court records show Graham made not just one, but two phone calls to Raffensperger and his staff. He called Raffensperger in November 2020 as the Secretary of State was overseeing a recount and an audit of the presidential race. Graham asked about the process for rejecting absentee ballots because of mismatched signatures. In Raffensperger's eyes, Graham, then the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, was suggesting that he find ways to reject legally cast ballots to help Trump's re-election chances. That's how Fulton prosecutors view it, too. In Graham's subpoena, they say the senator was inquiring about re-examining absentee ballots, quote, in order to explore the possibility of a more favorable outcome for Trump. Graham has long insisted he did nothing wrong. When news of his phone call with Raffensperger first leaked out, he said he was merely asking how Georgia's signature matching process worked. Here he is being questioned by NBC News in a Senate hallway. That's ridiculous. I talked to him about how you verify signatures. Right now, a single person verifies signatures, and I suggested as you go forward, can you change it to make sure that a bipartisan team verifies signatures, and if there's a dispute, come up with an appeal process. Why is a senator from South Carolina calling the Secretary of State in Georgia anyway? Uh, Because uh, the future of the country hangs in the balance. I am all over this. I am not backing off on asking questions about how to verify signatures with mail-in balloting, but I never suggested the Secretary of State to do anything inappropriate. After he was subpoenaed, two lawyers retained by Graham said the senator was well within his rights as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee to, quote, discuss with state officials the processes and procedures around administering elections. And Team Graham says it'll fight the subpoena. Another focus of the investigation in Fulton County and also within the U.S. Justice Department, is the shadow slate of Republican electors who cast phony ballots in December 2020. We know investigators from the DA's office have spoken to at least two of those alternative electors, including David Schaefer, the chairman of Georgia's Republican Party. Here's what Schaefer told reporters after the GOP electors held a hush-hush ceremony in the Georgia Capitol 18 months ago. We were asked by the president's lawyers to hold this meeting to preserve his rights under the pending pending litigation. So because the president's lawsuit contesting the Georgia election has not been decided or even heard, we held this meeting to preserve his uh, rights. Had we not held the meeting, then uh, his lawsuit would effectively uh, be mooted. In this latest batch of subpoenas, the grand jury sought testimony from Kenneth Cheesebro, an attorney for the Trump campaign whose name has come up in the select committee hearings. Fulton prosecutors say Cheesebro worked with the state Republican Party to organize the slate of electors on behalf of the Trump campaign, and he drafted two memos in support of the scheme and provided a template of documents for the party to use during its ceremony at the state capitol. The grand jury subpoena for John Eastman says he was an attorney for the Trump campaign's efforts to influence the 2020 election in Georgia. It says his appearance before a state Senate subcommittee was part of a multi-state coordinated plan by the campaign. 
and it says Eastman tried to unsuccessfully get Vice President Mike Pence to refuse to count some of President Joe Biden's electoral college votes. Eastman laid out his reasoning for appointing alternative electors during the hearing on December 3, 2020. Testifying over video, Eastman says evidence of fraud and improper conduct was more than enough to warrant Georgia legislators to pick new electors. Never mind that similar claims of fraud had failed to pass muster in any court. And when you add in the mix of the significant statistical anomalies and sworn affidavits and video evidence of outright election fraud, I don't think it's just your authority to do that. But quite frankly, I think you have a duty to do that, to protect uh, the, the integrity of, of the election uh, here in Georgia. Um, these violations, combined with uh, the significant evidence of fraud, in my view, strongly support the conclusion that something is amiss here and that the legislature simply must investigate, as you're doing with this hearing today. And then if there's a result of this investigation, you're convinced that the election was conducted contrary to state law and too fraught with the risk of fraud to be properly certified, then you should exercise your prerogative to legislatively designate a slate of electors more in line with what the evidence of what actually happened on Election Day by valid votes uh, uh, demonstrated. Legal experts from across the political spectrum have condemned the reasoning behind the fake electors plan. And during the hearing with Eastman, Democrats pushed back against the claims. And what do you say, in terms of proving that there is a failed election, what do you say to what's been laid out by our Secretary of State, Governor, Attorney General Barr, and, and the courts? Because right now there have not been, as far as I'm aware, proof of the number of ballots that would be required to have, to have been problematic to switch the election and call it a failed election. I, I, don't, I don't know where the evidence is. That's Atlanta Democrat Elena Parent. The senator received death threats on social media for her comments. Her personal information was published online, prompting her to request police protection. Parent was subpoenaed by the special grand jury and testified for two hours in June. So we've known for a while about the grand jury's interest in that Senate subcommittee hearing with Eastman. As we record this, there's been no word if Eastman will fight his subpoena. He lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. His name has come up a lot during the select committee hearings. Here's White House lawyer Eric Hirschman recalling what he told Eastman during a phone call the day after the insurrection. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And then I hung up on him. Eastman later asked for a presidential pardon, but he didn't get one. During his deposition before the select committee, Eastman invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination 100 times. I assert my Fifth Amendment right against uh, being compelled to be a witness against myself. Did the Trump legal team ask you to prepare a memorandum regarding the vice president's role in the counting of electoral votes at the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2020? Yep. Dr. Eastman, did you advise the president of the United States that the vice president could reject electors from seven states and declare that the president had been reelected. So if Eastman is compelled to testify before the special purpose grand jury, it may hear the same thing. When we asked Norm Eisen about this possibility, he says D.A. Willis should keep at it. Yep, so did, uh, so did other members of the uh, coup crew. But um, 
the coup legal crew. But there's no, um, and if that's what folks are going to do here, that's fine too. Let's find it out now. Let's not wait until trial to find it out. So I think she's doing the right thing too. These are clearly the key out-of-state witnesses, uh, save for Meadows and Trump, in the hostile witness category. The subcommittee hearing was chaired by Republican William Ligon. He was also subpoenaed to testify before the special purpose grand jury and was to appear the week of July 11th. At that subcommittee hearing, Ligon basically turned over the floor to Rudy Giuliani for more than six hours of televised fraud allegations. Giuliani's testimony was filled with conspiracy theories quickly disproven by elections investigators like his claim about the surveillance video from State Farm Arena in Atlanta on election night, how election workers allegedly pulled out suitcases filled with ballots and counted them multiple times, all for Biden. When you look at that rejection rate, and when you look at what you saw on the video, which to me was a smoking gun, powerful smoking gun, well, I don't, don't have to be a genius to figure out what happened. I, I don't have to be a genius to figure out that those votes are not legitimate votes. You don't put legitimate votes under a table. No. <laughs> Wait until you throw the opposition out and in the middle of the night count them. We would have to be fools to think that. And we've heard from Secretary Raffensperger, former U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack, and even former Attorney General Bill Barr that there was nothing to the selectively edited State Farm video. The suitcases full of ballots... They were the official sealed ballot containers. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Despite the fact authorities found no fraud at State Farm Arena, Giuliani dug in. He made claims of a giant election conspiracy before the December 3rd Senate hearing, and once again a week later before a state House committee. The special purpose grand jury also subpoenaed two other members of Giuliani's team. They were at the state Senate hearing, Jenna Ellis and Jackie Pick Deason. Jurors have already heard from three Democratic legislators who sat in on the hearings. One of them, is Senator Jen Jordan. She says there was a lot of confusion and shadiness in the lead up to Giuliani's testimony. Here she's referring to Democratic colleague Elena Parent. And then I got a text from a friend, I can't even remember who it was, who was like, you gotta get over there. Um, Elena's by herself in there in terms of being the only Democratic lawyer in the room and um, something's up, Giuliani's in there. And that's when I went back over and, you know, the next 
seven hours ensued. Jordan is now the Democratic nominee for Georgia's attorney general. Here are her thoughts about that hearing. I mean, it's scary because it's, I remember when I was sitting there listening to the that subcommittee meeting, I was like, this is, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, right? And, and really, from my, where I'm sitting now, I believe that the entire hearing not only was um, done to kind of push out misinformation, because, you know, OAN and Newsmax were live streaming it, um, and nobody really could push back except for Elena. And I was like, you know, we have no idea who these people are that are testifying or whatever. Um, I think it was done for, for misinformation, but now I really do think it was intended um, to establish um, the election irregularities or the breaches of election law that John Eastman said had to occur um, for then the legislature to act to throw out the electors. So it literally, the scheme was being implemented here on the ground, you know, in the Capitol building, in the Senate committee room. State Representative B. Wynn also testified before the special grand jury last month. She's now the Democratic nominee for Secretary of State, facing off against incumbent Brad Raffensperger in November. She sat on the House committee that heard from Giuliani. When I spoke to Wynn after she testified, she noted something that's not widely known. Unlike in Congress or in a courtroom, witnesses who testify before the Georgia legislature aren't under oath. Wynn says that creates confusion for the public. This is a disservice that our legislative body should be regarded in such a way that if we are going to host a hearing, the assumption is the public is going to put the trust in us as lawmakers to hold legitimate hearings. They don't understand the details or the nuances of how the legislature works, primarily the fact that when somebody shows up in committee, you are not required to take an oath to tell the truth. And so it lended Giuliani the type of, the kind of legitimacy that he didn't deserve. And because we don't have the obligation or or the laws that require people to be sworn in and and telling the truth, um, it doesn't hold the witnesses who come before us to the standard that a courtroom would hold witnesses. Some of what is important is to help people understand that these were sham hearings and that some of the norms that we typically have in the legislature weren't even in place for that day, including the ability to ask him any questions as a lawmaker. We almost are never in committees where a witness comes forward and gives us a presentation and we're completely denied the opportunity to ask any questions. Wynn mentions that just like the Senate hearings, Giuliani's appearance before her House committee was also cloaked in mystery. There was little advance notice, and lawmakers were told that they couldn't question Giuliani like they could a regular witness. We went to a break that wasn't scheduled, and when we returned, we were given explicit instructions that we were not allowed to question Rudy Giuliani. So they allowed him to, for however long he was speaking to us, They allowed him to say whatever he wanted to say and needed to say. And we were explicitly instructed we were not allowed to ask him any questions. And when he was done with his testimony, they went back to the format of being able to ask questions to other witnesses who appeared that day. 
Wynne drew a line connecting the Giuliani testimony in Georgia to what happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol and to the passage, months later, of sweeping elections legislation in Georgia. It places stricter requirements on absentee ballots, ballot drop boxes, and bars people from handing out water bottles and pizza to voters in line. What I saw as a lawmaker was a very concerted, coordinated effort to attack the validity of absentee ballot voting before the results of the general election. That took place both inside Georgia legislature, but outside of the legislature, and it became a nationalized talking point to set us up to November of 2020. And they used those very same talking points to justify trying to overturn the results of the election. So what should we make of all these new subpoenas and information about where prosecutors are looking? The approval of subpoenas for the out-of-state witnesses who are so close to Trump certainly suggests the investigation is entering a new phase. We asked Willis if what Senator Lindsey Graham's lawyers say in their statement is true, that Fulton prosecutors have told them the senator is not a target of the investigation. I'm not going to comment on that. Has she told anyone they're a target? Yes. Is that person Donald Trump? I'm not going to speak on who that person is, but we have we have informed some that they are being looked at as a target. Or let me say more clearly, we've told people's lawyers that. So multiple people now know that they are the targets of the grand jury investigation. Up until just recently, it seemed as if the low-hanging fruit, the friendly, cooperative witnesses, had seemingly been picked. What's left, as Willis moves closer and closer to Trump, are witnesses who could be more hostile and willing to go to court to fight subpoenas. I'm not going to characterize the witnesses as hostile. Uh, I just think that we live in a litigious country that uh, it really was to be expected, so it wasn't a shock to me. So you know that sometimes we have to go get witnesses, sometimes we even have to arrest witnesses. This for me as a prosecutor, you know, people challenging our subpoenas, it, it literally is just part for the course. It's just part of the way you move forward. I think the circus has just begun. This is former Gwinnett County District Attorney Danny Porter. Once they start hitting these people, Giuliani, Eastman, Graham, you're going to see a flurry of legal filings to try and prevent them from having to appear in front of the grand jury which is sort of what we talked about early on. I think that battle has, this is sort of the first shot. Senator Graham's lawyers promise to fight back. They're calling the special purpose grand jury probe a fishing expedition. In a statement, they say, quote, Senator Graham plans to go to court, challenge the subpoena, and expects to prevail. Graham's subpoena was signed July 1st by Judge Robert McBurney, who is overseeing the special purpose grand jury. It makes note of the two phone calls Graham placed to the Secretary of State's office, and it calls the senator, quote, a necessary and material witness to the investigation. And, just for the record, it's officially called a certificate of material witness, and it used to be called a material witness subpoena. Well, what it boils down to is you have a witness, typically who is uh, either out of state or one that you believe will not acknowledge your um, witness subpoena. And so you file a certificate of a material witness and you make a showing, a proffer in front of the court, why this witness is material to your case. 
That's Pete Scandalakis, head of Georgia's Prosecuting Attorneys Council. He notes the first court hearing won't be in Atlanta. If they're going to fight the subpoena because they say it places an undue burden or that they have no material facts that will help the case, um, then obviously Fulton County DA's, assistant DA's will show up in that neighboring state for a hearing with the judge in, in that other state. And then the judge will say, yes, they've made out their case. You are a material witness. You've got to honor this subpoena. You know, you're just not going to be able not to show up, you know. The subpoena served on Graham says he needs to appear before the special purpose grand jury sometime between August 2nd and August 31st. And, in Graham's case, he has to first appear before a superior court judge in Washington, D.C. Here's Danny Porter explaining what happens in court. At the hearing in that jurisdiction where they live... There's really only three questions. Number one is, are they the person that's wanted, that you want to come? The second thing that they can raise as a defense is that any testimony that they give would not be material. And the third defense is it would create a hardship on them to travel during the time and date that's specified on the subpoena. To be sure, one or more Fulton County prosecutors will be there. But it will be the local district attorneys in the places where the witnesses live, in, say, Manhattan for Rudy Giuliani or in New Mexico for John Eastman, who will argue for the Fulton DA. The judge up there makes the final determination of whether whether they need to come, which is frankly pretty routine that they, they usually decide that they have to come. And then... The judge up there can either hold them in custody pending them being picked up by the Georgia authorities or they can grant them what's called a material witness bond and they can post bond to secure their appearance. And then because you have to pay for their travel expenses, they come to Georgia. Either they're brought to Georgia or or they come by themselves and then they show up and testify. The state will pay reasonable expenses for the out-of-state witness to come to Atlanta and testify. But if they don't come to testify, here's Pete Scandalakis again. If you don't honor the subpoena, a material witness subpoena, then uh, let's just say the day comes and goes and you don't show up in court. The court can then send a sheriff's deputy out to bring you in to find out if you're in contempt of court, can make you post a bond, and then can deliver you to the, to the court. I know this is already interesting, but it could get really, really interesting, right? Absolutely. And D.A. Willis plans to fight for Graham to testify. You know, I'm a lawyer. I expect lawyers to fight uh, the subpoena. It didn't really come as a surprise to me. I had an interviewer ask me recently, am I surprised that people would try not to come? It's not of any surprise. I mean, we have a lot to do here in Fulton County, Georgia. If this was not a serious investigation, I certainly would not be conducting it. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If a D.C. judge signs off on Graham's subpoena, he and his lawyers could come to Atlanta and raise legislative immunity arguments to try to prevent his testimony. We recently got a preview of what those arguments could look like in Fulton County Superior Court. 
Two Republicans, former Senator Ligon and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, tried to restrict what Fulton County prosecutors could ask them before the special purpose grand jury, and they were acting on behalf of some of their colleagues who declined to be identified. Duncan, who's president of the Senate, has been highly critical of Trump, accusing the former president of lying about widespread election fraud. But Ligon is a different story altogether. A lawyer and former judge, Ligon played a key role in trying to overturn President Joe Biden's victory in Georgia. He was in Washington on the day of the January 6th riot. He had signed a letter urging Vice President Mike Pence to postpone certification of the election results, although the letter was never delivered to Pence. Ligon also wrote a letter to then-President Trump. Here is Trump reading a part of it at a January 4th, 2021 rally in Dalton, Georgia. I want to read you from a letter from Georgia State Senator William Ligon. You know who he is, right? Highly respected guy. Dear Mr. President, as chairman of the Georgia Senate Judiciary Committee on Elections, I request that you immediately send an outside team of cyber experts to investigate potential hacking and other irregularities associated with Dominion voting systems, scanners, ballot marking devices, ballots, polling pads used in the 2020 general election in Georgia. Ligon did not run for re-election and left the state Senate in January 2021, but he's of interest to the special purpose grand jury. As subcommittee chair, he allowed Giuliani to spin his web of conspiracy theories that had been debunked by state and federal officials. In a court filing, the DA's office noted that Ligon authored a report after the hearing that presented the false claims made by Giuliani and others as true findings. Jeffrey Clark, a Trump ally in the Justice Department, later cited that report in a letter he drafted but never sent, urging Georgia officials to appoint a new slate of presidential electors. Ligon also made some recommendations in his report, such as, if the General Assembly agreed with him, it should rescind the certification of the election and determine, quote, the proper electors to be certified to the Electoral College. The DA's office says Ligon presented demonstrable falsehoods as true findings and, quote, to suggest otherwise makes a mockery of the integrity of the legislative process. It also says appointing a separate slate of electors violates both federal law and the fundamental tenets of democracy. That's strong language. The DA's office isn't holding back its thoughts about what Ligon was trying to do. Not at all. The DA's office made those assertions in response to a motion to challenge the subpoenas served on Duncan and Ligon. The motion was filed by lawyers breakdown listeners know very well, Don Samuel and Amanda Clark Palmer. They had been appointed special assistant legislative counsel. The motion argued lawmakers are immune from being questioned about their legislative activities. Such legislative immunity is embedded in the U.S. Constitution in what's called the Speech or Debate Clause. It's also spelled out in the Georgia Constitution, which says no legislator or staff member, quote, shall be made liable to answer in another place for anything spoken in either house or in any committee meeting of either house. Having to decide the matter is Judge McBurney, who hears arguments on July 1st. Okay, we are here for a hearing on a motion to quash uh, certain subpoenas that the district attorney's office has served. I think right now it's two that we're working through, but it's one of the things we're gonna explore. 
in the matter of 2022 EX4024, the special purpose grand jury that was convened on May 2nd of this year. The unusual hearing features a clash between two branches of government, the executive and the legislative, while being overseen by the third branch, the judicial. And it soon becomes clear that a 1972 U.S. Supreme Court opinion, Gravel versus United States, is a guiding precedent for the hearing and McBurney's ultimate decision. It's a case involving U.S. Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska, who in 1971 received a copy of the Pentagon Papers, the classified Defense Department study of the history of the war in Vietnam. Gravel smuggled the papers in suitcases to his congressional office. As chair of the Subcommittee on Public Buildings and Grounds, which had nothing to do with oversight of the Vietnam War, Gravel convened a hearing and read extensively from the Pentagon Papers. He then placed all 47 volumes of the papers into the public record. A federal grand jury investigating the publication of the classified documents subpoenaed Leonard Rodberg, a congressional aide who helped prepare Gravel for the hearing. And when Gravel heard about the subpoena, he filed a motion to quash it. The Supreme Court issued its opinion in 1972. It ruled that members of Congress and their aides are indeed protected by a legislative immunity under the Speech or Debate Clause. But the immunity does not extend to senators or their aides from testifying at grand jury proceedings involving third-party crimes, such as an investigation as to whether the publication of the classified Pentagon Papers broke the law. McBurney gives his thoughts on what can and can't be done. Some legal, as opposed to procedural, bright lines that I think apply here is that number one, and the baseline of everything we're working through, is that this legislative privilege is absolute for all legitimate legislative activity. Well, what constitutes legitimate legislative activity? And definitionally, that would mean you're on the floor and you're arguing, you're preparing a bill, legislators are conferring within the same side or across the aisle. Um, that would all be in that sphere of legitimate legislative activity. Um, if the legislators are performing a discretionary policy-making function or an agent of the legislator is doing that, uh, then that conduct is privileged and cannot be examined why did you say what you say? Why did you do what you do? Um, that would be one branch interfering with the business of another branch. That's our baseline. McBurney also says discussions among legislators and staff about their motivations and preparations for legislative hearings are also privileged. But then he gets into the exception set by Gravel versus the United States. Where it becomes less clear, and I am presently leaning in the direction of ought to be allowed, is that a communication that a legislator or her staff member had with a third party, um, whether it is in connection with work that the legislator is performing or not, is subject to exploration by the grand jury, given that the grand jury is investigating possible third party crime. Samuel pushes back. But I don't think that that opens the door to all communications outside of the, the Capitol building itself. All communications that any member ever had with anybody, just because we're dealing with a special purpose grand jury. I think that- Right, it wouldn't be relevant if, if the district attorney's office asked one of your clients, well, what about gun control? What, why were you, that 
it's not within the scope of the special purpose grand jury's charter. So there are rails keeping the district attorney's office heading in a certain direction um, in their pursuit of should this be formal charges or not. Um, and those are, are rails that your client would be able to invoke. Wait a minute, now you're asking me about gun control. I, that's not, this is why we're talking about guidelines. Here's Assistant DA Donald Wakeford hammering home the Gravel decision to McBurney. And the judge's response shows how he's going to rule. And in Gravel, the Supreme Court said that there could be no questioning of a senator or his aide, except as it proves relevant to investigating possible third-party crime. Possible third-party crime. Concerning any act in itself, not criminal, performed by the senator or by his aides in the course of their employment in preparation for the subcommittee hearing. So seems like it's tailored for your investigation. It takes just five days for McBurney to issue his ruling. He says, first, neither the DA nor the grand jurors can ask legislative witnesses about what was said while participating in any session of the General Assembly, be it on the House or Senate floor or in a committee. Second, no legislative witnesses may be asked about communications they had with legislators in preparing for any session or drafting any legislation or official report. But legislative immunity ends and the grand jury's authority to question witnesses about possible criminal election interference begins when a legislator or staff member has talked to private citizens about that topic. In other words, there is no legislator-constituent privilege. McBurney says the grand jury, for example, can ask Ligon to identify any non-legislators and non-staffers he met with and talked to about rescinding the certification of the election results and substituting other electors. And the grand jury may explore with Ligon what ideas those people shared with him. I like what McBurney writes in a footnote. He notes that Samuel and Clark Palmer had cited vigorous dissents by three justices in the minority of the Gravel decision. He writes, quote, to restate what seems to become a forgotten axiom of American democracy, a lesser vote count, be it in a judicial opinion or a general election, does not carry the day. It seems like Lindsey Graham and his lawyers might want to take a close look at the Gravel decision and McBurney's ruling. It certainly seems like it won't be easy getting around it. Here's Norm Eisen. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought, you know, the Judge McBurney opinion is fascinating. One, it shows that we have a very capable jurist who um, will um, um, preview a little bit. I think that that, I think that opinion, obviously he knew the Lindsey Graham subpoena was out there. The federal speech and debate cause, clause protects Lindsey Graham for what he does on the floor of the Senate. It protects him from getting arrested as he's traveling to or from an official Senate session. But it does not protect him from extracurricular um, uh, activities that trigger criminal investigation and require him to come testify before a special grand jury. That's just not the protection the Constitution affords. And this is Senator Jen Jordan again with her take on the arguments for legislative immunity. People hide behind privileges. And they can say what they want about this being about the integrity of the body. That's, that's just not true. If they cared about the integrity of the body, they wouldn't have allowed that subcommittee to go forward in the first place. So who's next in line to get an out-of-state subpoena? 
Willis hasn't completely ruled out serving one on Trump himself. Eisen says there's another route she can take. You know, um, a modified version might be to subpoena documents. That's more commonly done with targets. But yes, I, I think I would. I would not take it off the table. Let's see if he's willing to come in and talk to the grand jury. If the appropriate, um, if he's read his rights and he gets the appropriate protections. We asked Willis about her timeline moving forward. Subpoenaing Giuliani suggests that she's getting mighty close to former President Trump. Is that a sign Willis is nearing the end of her investigation? Um, I have a hope. <laughs> Let me say that. I have a hope. Uh, my hope is that we'll wrap up this year completely. Um, that is my hope. But, you know, as your colleague has said, because I don't know how many challenges will come, because I am fully expecting challenges, um, and for those challenges to be heard, because a lot of the witnesses we're calling are from out of states, and now I have to deal with out of states courts, that's all a variable I do not know. Let me tell you what I feel real comfortable with. I feel very comfortable with the fact that we got a grand jury that's sitting long enough that we're going to be able to get the work done. We wanted to make sure we knew exactly what Willis meant by end-of-the-year decisions. Did she mean just the end of the special purpose grand jury's work? I would say certainly that we would have a recommendation and maybe even with a charging decision. And this just in. After we finished recording this episode we learned that District Attorney Willis had sent target letters to at least two of the fake electors, State GOP Chair David Schaefer and Burt Jones, the Republican nominee for Lieutenant Governor. Jones' lawyers, by the way, have filed a motion to disqualify Willis. They note that on June 15th, Willis hosted a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, who just so happens to be Jones's Democratic opponent for Lieutenant Governor. And Tamar also learned that Senator Lindsey Graham filed a motion asking a federal judge to quash his subpoena. Graham's lawyers argued the speech or debate clause shields the senator from answering any questions. The motion says, quote, Senator Graham did not inject himself into Georgia's electoral process and never tried to alter the outcome of any election. A federal judge has scheduled a hearing on the motion for July 20th in Charleston, South Carolina. We will be there. Next on Breakdown, this case is certainly one for the history books. Oh, look, the possible indictment of Donald Trump would be unprecedented in our history, which is not to say unwarranted. I guess that's for the grand jury to decide. We obviously came very close with Richard Nixon and Watergate, and that is to the extent there's a precedent, I think what comes to most people's minds. Nixon was, as the parlance of Watergate had it, an unindicted co-conspirator. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will continue to drop an episode every week over the next few weeks. Then we'll come back from time to time whenever major news breaks in this story. And I think you can count on that happening. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, particularly our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.